Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Come in. I hope you've had a good week. Oh, you got a coat. Good. You'll probably need it going home tonight. Rain. Yeah. Expected rain. That's a sort of two-word summary of life, isn't it? Expected rain. It's the prop on which most horror is founded, isn't it? The failure to expect the awful, the hint that the awful will appear, the growing realization that it's right there in the room right now. Well, shut up, Larry. Get to business. First, I want to call your attention to the artwork. I've been a wretched host this month. The image that covers our page is by Marta Strange. Marta is a photographer from Poland, she's 22, and has been in photography since 2007. Marta says, I love experimental photography combined with emotions and fashion, sometimes scary pictures from my head. Well, stop by her blog. It's blog.martastreng.com. That's M-A-R-T-A-S-T-R-E-N-G. Com. And whether you speak Polish or not, I think you'll find the images lovely, intriguing, and maybe maybe a little unnerving. Maybe they'll insert some of Marta's scary pictures into your head. Next, welcome to show 10 of Tales to Terrify. You know me by now, Lawrence Santoro. 
So settle in, get comfortable. Things are a little different tonight. It's Stoker season. The Horror Writers Association's Bram Stoker Awards will be given out at the end of the month in Salt Lake City as part of the 2012 World Horror Convention. I'm not going to be there. Wish I could, but best of luck to everybody. As mentioned, Tales to Terrify has a series of your visits to the Nook centered on this year's Bram Stoker nominees. Uh, the tales will deal with in the category of superior achievement in short fiction. Superior achievement. The HWA does not presume to say best story. In the HWA, short fiction is under 7,500 words in length. More than that, and a tale falls into the long fiction category. Some of the stories you'll hear on Tales to Terrify over the next few weeks will nudge that as a limit. Uh, Stephen King's Herman Woke is Still Alive comes in at almost 7,000, for example. Short fiction is the melee category for the HWA. Literally hundreds of writers, probably thousands of stories, get to compete here for the little haunted house that is the Stoker Award. By rule and by tradition as rule, the field gets narrowed down by the membership to, this year, six finalists. Here they are. Her Husband's Hands by Adam Troy Castro from Lightspeed magazine. Herman Woke is Still Alive by Stephen King from The Atlantic magazine. Hypergraphia by Ken Lilly Pates from The Uninvited Number 1. Rafiti Sonata by Gene O'Neill from Dark Discoveries 18. Home by George Saunders from The New Yorker magazine. And All You Can Do Is Breathe by Karen Warren from Blood and Other Cravings. Tonight, we'll have three of those Stoker-nominated tales. Shall we settle down and listen? We begin with Gene O'Neill. Gene is probably best known as a multi-award-nominated writer of science fiction, fantasy, and horror fiction. His professional writing career began after he completed the Clarion West Writers' Workshop back in 1979. By now, over 100 of his works have been published. He's had stories in... Cemetery Dance Magazine, Twilight Zone Magazine, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, many, many more. Like most writers, Gene has done many other things in his life, and in addition to being a college basketball player, an amateur boxer, a U.S. Marine, he's been a postal worker, a contract specialist for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, a right-of-way agent, and the vice president of a small manufacturing plant. He holds two degrees from California State University, Sacramento, and the University of Minnesota. He currently writes full-time and lives in the Napa Valley with his wife, Kay. His 2011 Stoker-nominated story is from Dark Discoveries and is entitled Graffiti Sonata. First movement. Lake Merritt, the lights in the windows of an apartment along the shore, shrouded in heavy fog. A few people out along East Lakeshore Drive, anxious to get in out of the misty night, except for a lone figure. 
dressed in dark clothes, lurking in the shadows of the four-story complex on the corner, spying up at a lighted second-floor apartment, standing, watching. For a moment after McKay opened the door of his Oakland apartment and saw Elise standing there, he felt his spirit surge. In the next instant, he realised his wife hadn't brought their daughter Ty along, only some folded-up cardboard boxes under her arm. His elation faded. Before he could say anything, Elise held up her hand, reinforcing his inference. I'm done talking, Mac. Just here to pack a few more things. He nodded and said, It's good to see you, knowing any weak arguments he had left were preempted. Three weeks ago, Elise and their six-year-old daughter had moved out to a friend's vacant apartment over on Lake Merritt. In a week, they were taking off to Elise's sister Lauren's place down at Pismo Beach. Watching Elise unfold the packing boxes, McKay yearned to tell his wife how much he missed her flute playing, her classical CDs, the three of them laughing together, the essential joyful sounds of his life. He said nothing, realising the time of effectively pleading his case had passed. Deflated, McKay left Elise packing. He had taken the nearby pedestrian overpass across the freeway to the park to gather his thoughts. On the way down the enclosed steps to the playground, he stopped after he saw a drawing freshly chalked on the concrete wall. He had visited the park often in the past three weeks, fleeing the silence of the apartment, but had never noticed anything drawn on the wall. The image was a man wearing an indigo peacoat with his collar turned up and a black stocking cap rolled down to his eyes. He was looking back over his shoulder, the shadows not completely covering his square jaw, his penetrating eyes, his grim expression. Unlike most graffiti McKay had seen spray-painted on freeway columns, there was no tagline. Looking the work over with a technical eye, he realised this wasn't an amateurish cartoon at all. A competent artist had taken time to carefully outline, shade and highlight using minimal colours to make a startling life-size figure. In fact, the thing was menacing, raising the hair on the back of McKay's neck. An image of a lowlife with bad intentions, about to step out away from the wall. Turning away, McKay shivered. He continued down the overpass steps. His wife and daughter were moving out of town in a week, perhaps out of his life forever. The playground was unoccupied at this time of night. McKay sat down on a nearby bench. Sucking in a deep breath, he tried to centre, clear his mind, and focus like Dr. Havlicek had taught him. He stretched his hands out along the seat back, noticing that the trembling wasn't too bad this evening, only a slight tremor. The condition had developed after he had experienced a seizure at his drafting table last December. Despite the medical help and Elisa's support, McKay had sunk into a black funk, a depression that only regular doses of medication helped partially alleviate. But nothing seemed to help the numbness and trembling in his hands. He was incapable of writing clearly, much less doing fine art. For eight months he'd done little more than sit and watch the same movies, 
over and over again on TV. Then, a month ago, Elise admitted she was fed up. If the shaking were really something physical, they wouldn't have referred you to a psychiatrist, she'd argued. Besides, there are other things you could do with your MFA. Teach, maybe? Anyhow, we need a break, Mac. Ty and I are moving to Jamie's apartment on Lake Merritt. Then, after her dance camp, we're heading to my sister's. When you get yourself back on track, call us. McKay glanced absently around the empty park. His biggest concern was that his wife and daughter would remain permanently down at Pismo Beach. His art income had been unreliable at best, fluctuating dramatically. Elisa's Oakland Symphony and several other part-time gigs had mostly supported the family, especially during the last eight months. Hell, he thought, after the seizure, he couldn't even draw unemployment. Slumping back on the bench, McKay realised he was emotionally drained, exhausted. Looking about, he thought it was peaceful here, the hum of nearby traffic a pleasing background, like one of Elisa's flute CDs. He closed his eyes, drifted off. McKay awoke stiff and chilled on the park bench. It was completely dark now, the fog having moved in from the bay, settling around him like a fallen cloud. He stood up and rubbed his bare arms. Better head back to the apartment, he thought. Elise would have the last of her stuff packed and be long gone by now. But climbing up the stairs to the overpass, McKay stopped at the spot where the graffito had been chalked. The figure had disappeared, the concrete wall clean and grey. He spread his fingers and cautiously placed his hand where he thought the drawing had been. He rubbed his fingertips. No chalk dust and the surface was dry. Nothing on the steps indicating the wall had been washed clean. It appeared the indigo man had just walked off the wall into the night. That's weird, McKay thought, as he climbed the remaining stairs, checking to make sure he had not just made a mistake in location. But the wall was completely clean of graffiti clear to the top near the overpass. He walked home wondering if perhaps he'd taken too much medication. His cell phone rang. Hello? Mac, you have to come over right now, Elise said. Her voice was tense. There's a man loitering outside. He's been there since dark. Have you called the cops? His attention was suddenly heightened. The air was sharp, the rustle of leaves distracting. No, what can I tell them? Some jerk is down on the street looking up at my window. They'll think I'm a paranoid crank. Okay, okay, I'll be right over. By the time McKay got to Lake Merritt, there wasn't anyone hanging about in front of the apartments. He carefully checked both side streets of the corner building. He found no one suspicious along either street. He made his way back to the front of the complex and buzzed up to Elisa's apartment on the intercom. Nobody's here, babe. I've checked around the building for a block each way. Oh, great. That's such a relief, Mac, Elise answered back. Actually... The last time I saw him was just before I called. Maybe my nerves have been strung too tight lately. Sorry for the trouble. You want me to come up? He asked, his fingers resting on the intercom button. There was a brief hesitation before she finally answered. No, that probably isn't a good idea. I've got to clean up and get tied to bed. But thanks for coming by, Mac. We appreciate it. 
Dismissed, he stood there for a minute or so, staring at the intercom. The next morning, McKay found the graffito back in a different location, about three quarters down the steps to the park. The indigo man stared back at McKay with his same piercing gaze, but there was something slightly different about the pose. It was the angle of the body and head, a little more face exposed now. McKay felt a slight stir of recognition. He felt he knew this man. He shook his head with frustration, not quite able to pull up the memory. Later on in the week, on Sunday evening, the mysterious drawing remained in place like a sentinel, no one daring to erase or vandalise it. Of course, McKay couldn't help wondering who had chalked the graffito in the first place. Was the face really all that familiar? Most of his time at the park he spent trying to figure out some way to prevent his wife and daughter from going to Pismo Beach. That next night, McKay skipped his medication, wandered into his studio, and dug around the desk next to the dusty drafting table. Finally, he found the Jack Daniels he'd hid from Elise after Dr. Havlicek had warned him about drinking while on medication. He settled down in front of the TV and drank from the bottle the whiskey burning his throat. One of his favourite movies, Blade Runner, was showing again on TNT. Only the last few minutes remained, the chase and the great ending in the rain on the Gothic building. Second Movement a lonely stretch of 101, just south of San Luis Obispo. Elisa's bright yellow jetta speeds through the night. There are no cars in the southbound lanes, only occasional headlights in the northbound lanes, resembling Japanese lanterns in the mist. A figure appears unexpectedly ahead, in the middle of the highway lane, tall and dark, pea coat and stocking cap, arms raised overhead. Breaking the VW Veer's right in an attempt to avoid striking the man, the car skids on the loose shoulder, flips over the fence, slams onto an oak tree, upside down, wheels spinning, no one exiting the car. Mr. McKay? A calm female voice on the line. Yes. McKay was groggy, mouth pasty. This is Lieutenant Melendez of the California Highway Patrol, San Luis Obispo. I'm afraid there has been a serious automobile accident down here involving your wife and daughter. Yes, he replied stiffly, his hangover forgotten, the Highway Patrol officer's words sobering him as if ice water had been splashed in his face. Your wife and daughter have been taken to Sierra Vista Regional Medical Center, emergency services. Both of them are hurt? he asked in a hoarse whisper, finding it difficult to grasp the exact meaning of the officer's words. How badly? Mr McKay, you'll need to personally contact the hospital for all the medical details and updates on your daughter and wife's status. At this time, I'm not privy to that information. He cleared his throat, focused, and answered. I understand. Someone from the CHP Oakland branch will get in contact with you during office hours tomorrow with more information on the accident Condition of the car, what is required of you? Yes, McKay said, feeling kind of detached now. He sat there with the phone in his hand. This can't be real, he thought. The phone rang again. It was Lauren. She made it all too real. The next four days were a blur, 
Lauren had taken care of all the arrangements, the church service memorial, even the Lutheran minister for the burial ceremony. McKay just stood off by himself, staring down at the side-by-side graves. He struggled internally, forcing himself to accept that his wife and daughter were inside the two ornate caskets that were being lowered into the ground. Someone nudged his arm. Mac, time to go to Lauren's. More faces, inaudible whispers, tasteless food. Finally, it was all over. He got home late Thursday afternoon and immediately went over to the park, still wearing his dark blue suit. Sure enough, the indigo man was on the wall, positioned above the last few steps before reaching the playground, his features only slightly shadowed. McKay touched the drawing, absolutely certain now that he knew the face. But he sighed, just too tired and numbed to expend the effort to recall details. He spent the early evening on the park bench, dozing in his rumpled suit. Later that evening, McKay searched around the desk in his studio, looking for another bottle of booze. There was nothing more to drink hidden anywhere in the apartment. Sucking in a deep breath, he decided he'd have to make a trip down to the nearby liquor store. McKay walked the two blocks, then, on impulse, he swung by the overpass to the park before heading home. He wasn't surprised to find that the figure had left the wall. Third movement. Midnight at San Luis Cemetery. Overcast, stars and moon completely screened by cloud cover. Two fresh graves visible in the darkness. After a few minutes, a figure, wearing a roll-down cap and coat and carrying something under his arm, moves quietly through the darkness. Approaching the graves, pauses and peers at the headstones. Then he withdraws an item from under his arm and sets it aside. The figure kneels atop first one grave, then the other. Still shrouded in darkness, the man moves to the side and retrieves the object from the ground. For a moment, the clouds divide and this part of the cemetery is illuminated by the moon. Friday afternoon, McKay returned to the pedestrian overpass. Coming down the steps, he thought the concrete canvas was completely clean of graffiti. But on the wall over the last step, he spotted a distant scene, two tiny figures, a woman and a child. Their features were vague, but McKay knew their identities. They seemed to be striding purposefully. Jesus, he whispered, breathing heavily, as if the air had been knocked from him. For a few minutes, McKay closely watched the figures. He finally decided that he needed to get home right now and take his medication, perhaps even double up. Back at the apartment, he couldn't sit still, wandering around nervously. After a few minutes, he went into his studio. Idly, he flipped over his sketch pad on the drawing board and to his surprise discovered new work. Still standing, McKay thumbed carefully through a dozen pages of faces. Oh my God, he murmured, studying the chalk drawings. They were actually sketches of his own face, being gradually transformed through the series, changed from a mirror image of himself on the first drawing to the rugged features of the indigo man on the last sketch. McKay focused on the man's eyes, which seemed to be peering back at him knowingly. Absently, 
He glanced down at his fingers holding a piece of chalk, his grip tremor-free, his hand steady as a surgeon's. Fourth movement, with flute solo. Sometime long after dark, McKay is awakened from where he dozes in his recliner by the haunting sound of a flute. Then, a moment of quiet, followed by a sharp knocking on the front door, and down lower on the door, he hears a lighter rap. Well, thank you for the story, Gene. And good luck at the end of the month in Salt Lake City. And thank you, Dan Raybarts, for the narration. As said before, Tales to Terrify is fortunate. We get a lot of really good writers to do a lot of truly excellent narration for us. Dan is a writer of fantasy novels and of speculative fiction in general. He's a sometimes narrator of podcasts, including stories for our big brother, the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa. He's also an occasional sailor of sailing things and the father of two wee miracles. And they all live in a little house on a hill under the southern sun. And that little house, by the way, is way south from the Nook and from Chicago. It's down and around where the hobbits live. New Zealand. You can find Dan on Twitter from time to time, on Facebook now and then, but like all of us who labor in the vineyards of words, he's got writing to do. Next, we have a story by Adam Troy Castro. Adam Troy is a self-described raconteur, fuss-budget, flibbity-gibbet, tender and keeper of a home for bipolar felines at, well, the world knows him more as an award-winning writer par excellence. Adam Troy made his first professional sale in 1987, and that was to the very cool, very hip, and now, alas, no longer digging or being dug publication, Spy Magazine. Since then, he's published 12 books and almost 80 short stories, among which are the Stoker-nominated Baby Girl Diamond and the Funeral March of the Marionettes nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards in 1998. The Astronaut from Wyoming was a collaboration he did with Jerry Ultian. That appeared in Analog and was nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards in the year 2000. I think I hate the man. His of a Sweet Slow Dance in the Wake of Temporary Dogs was nominated for the 2003 Nebula his original short story collections include Lost in Booth Nine, An Alien Darkness, and A Desperate Decaying Darkness. It goes on and on. No, no, I do. I do hate the man. Anyway, tonight. Tonight we have his Stoker nominated, Her Husband's Hands. And for it we have to thank not only Adam Troy and the reader, Kata Mazer, but John Joseph Adams, no, not to be confused with the Captain John Joseph Adams of the United Planets cruiser C-57D of Forbidden Planet fame. No, no, no. This is John Joseph Adams, the editor of Lightspeed magazine and a thousand other things. 
Lightspeed, by the way, is an online science fiction fantasy publication. And if that's your druthers, Lightspeed is a world of wonders, a veritable portmanteau of near-future, sociological, soft, SF, far-future, star-spanning hard stuff and fantasy, from epic sword and sorcery to contemporary urban tales to magical realism, science fantasy folk tales. It's, it's a great space, and writers take note. They pay, unlike us. Lightspeed was a finalist for the 2011 Hugo Award, and stories from Lightspeed have been nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards, the Theodore Sturgeon Award, and, pertinent here, the Stoker Award. All right, settle in. Her Husband's Hands by Adam Troy Castro Her Husband's Hands came home on a Friday... Rebecca had received word of the attack, which had claimed the lives of seven other soldiers in his unit and reduced three others to similar, minimal fractions of themselves. One man missing above the waist, another missing below, a third neatly halved, like a bisected man on display in an anatomy lab. The Veterans Administration had told her it could have been worse. The notification officer had reminded her of Tatum, the neighbor's daughter, so completely expunged by her own moment under fire that only a strip of skin and muscle remained. A section of her thigh, about the size and shape of a cigarette pack, returned to her parents in a box, and now living in their upstairs room, where it made a living proofreading articles on the Internet. That's no life, the notification officer said. But Bob, he pointed out was a pair of perfect hands, amputated from the body at the wrists, but still capable of accomplishing many great things. And there was always the cloning lottery. The chances were a couple of million to one, but it was something to hope for, and stranger things had happened. Rebecca had asked her parents, and his, and the friends so anxious to see him, to stay away. It was a personal moment, and she could not be sure that she would be able to take their solicitous platitudes. She waited at home, wanting a cigarette as much as she'd ever wanted anything in her entire life, and stared at the door until the knock came, and the two smartly uniformed escorts brought what was left of her husband inside in a box with an American flag on it. They opened the box and showed her Bob's hands, resting side by side on a white pillow, the left one lay palm down, the right one palm up. The one that was palm up twitched and waggled fingers at Rebecca when it saw her. The new, light-sensitive apertures at the fingertips blinked many times in what she could only assume was excitement. The fingernails had been manicured and buffed to a high sheen. Rebecca's eyes inevitably wandered to the wrists, which ended in thick silver bands, a lot like bracelets, except for the flat bottoms where arms should have emerged. They, Rebecca knew, contained not just the life support, without which her husband's hands would be just graying meat, but also his most recent memory backup, without which everything he had ever been and everything he had ever done would now be gone. She had not supposed that a pair of hands could be personal enough to be recognized, 
but she did recognize them. There was a crooked angle to one of the pinkies where he had once broken it catching a baseball, and it had not healed back precisely right. And there was a scar on one of the knuckles where he had once cut himself almost to the bone on broken glass. She knew those hands as the same ones that once could make her shiver when they were at the end of strong and comforting arms. The fingers wagged some more, and the escort told her that her husband wanted to talk to her. She said she did not know what to do. The younger of the two escorts presented her with a flat black pad with slots for fingers, turned it on, and placed it in the box where Bob's hands could get at it. As the text display came up, Bob's hands turned around, inserted fingertips into the pad's control slots, and did something, not exactly typing as she knew it from the familiar QWERTY keyboard, but something very much like it, with subtle and practiced movements that over the next few seconds forced words and sentences onto the screen. Rebecca, please don't be afraid, her husband's hands typed. I know this is strange and frightening, but it's still me. I can see you, and I'm glad to be home. I love you. Please, I want you to kiss me. There were few things Rebecca wanted to do less right now, but she knew her husband's hands would sense any further hesitation, and so she reached down and touched them. They disengaged from the black pad and let her pick them up, one hand in each of her own. They were as warm as she remembered, and heavier than she expected. A sick feeling rose in her throat as, driven by obligation, she gave each one a sweet kiss on the knuckles. Each one turned around in the hand that held it and twined its fingers through hers, a grip as tight and as complete as a hug would have been had fate decided to let him come home as a whole man. One of the escorts said, We'll leave you two alone now. Rebecca couldn't help thinking, What do you mean, you two? His hands are now two separate objects. Don't you mean you three? Or since they don't add up to anything even close to the whole man, shouldn't you be using fractions? Telling me, we'll leave you one and a tenth alone now? Or whatever? She thought all this, but did not say it, as they donned their caps and told her to call if she needed anything, and left her alone, grasping what had once been part, but not all, of the husband who only four years before had struck her 18-year-old self, sitting across from him in a college seminar, as the most beautiful man she'd ever seen. For a long time she sat with him, with them, in silence, sometimes, as she closed her eyes and waited for the reassuring squeezes that were as close as he could come to conversation without the type pad. She could almost fool herself into thinking those hands were connected to wrists that were connected to arms that joined its shoulders with a chest and a beating heart and lips and eyes and a man who could lie beside her and arouse her passions as well as her pity. After a while, his left hand gently disengaged from her right and climbed up to her shoulder, squeezing that as well before crab crawling to her face and finding the tear tracks on the side of her cheek. It froze at the discovery, and she could not help feeling that she'd failed him, 
that she'd proven herself shallow, that she'd hurt him, or what was left of him, at the moment he needed to know that she was still capable of loving him. Sometime later, his hands withdrew to the table so they could talk to her about the problems they now faced. The left one turned over on its back, so the light apertures on the fingertips could see her face, and the right one went to the type pad and told her that he knew how she felt, that this wasn't how he had envisioned their future either, and that if she gave him a chance, he would still be the best husband to her that he possibly could. Her hesitation, her struggle to come up with words that would not be a mockery or a lie, spoke volumes, and may have broken whatever he now had for a heart. But after a long time, she nodded, and it was a start. He could not tell her anything about what had happened to him. The last backup before the attack that had destroyed the rest of him was only a week old, sparing him the memories of a hellish ordeal under fire, watching the rest of the unit fall away, one or two at a time, in pieces. He typed that he had at best an academic knowledge of what had been in that backup, as he said there were things even then that he chose not to remember— and had preferred to live the rest of his life arrested at an even earlier set of memories, recorded two months before that, and blessedly free of some experiences that could have crippled him even more than his current condition. He typed that the war had been so terrible that he would have gotten rid of even more, had that been possible. There were certainly vets who backed up just as they were shipped out, and came back as parts or holes, refusing to remember any of what they'd done, or had done to them, over there. Rather than recall a single day in country, they preferred to live a life where being strong and fit and whole and on a troop carrier getting their past coded into a database was followed without so much as a single moment of transition by being older and finished with their time and back, reduced to a sentient body part on a plate. But there'd been buddies, people in his unit, who had done things for him in that time during his hitch that he would never allow himself to forget, not even if he also had to remember visions out of hell. He typed that the little he could remember, he would never talk to her about. After that, there was little to say. She made some lunch for herself, and his hands sat on a table watching her eat, the palms held upward so the fingertips could see, giving the accidental but undeniable impression that they were being held upward in supplication. Later, as the silence of the afternoon grew thick, the hands typed, I still enjoy watching you eat. It was something he had said before, as they'd circled each other, performing the rituals that connect early attraction to couplehood. He had appreciated her meticulousness, the way she addressed a plate of food as much like a puzzle to be disassembled as a meal to be savored. She did not respond that once upon a time she'd loved watching him eat as well, the sheer joy he'd taken in the foods he loved, the unabashed and unapologetic gusto with which he'd torn into meals that were not good for him. It was, she knew, a gusto he could never show any more, and that she'd never witness again another of life's pleasures robbed from them, left on a bloody patch of dirt beneath a foreign sky. She could not help thinking of all the meals to come, the breakfasts and lunches and dinners that for years unwritten would always be reminders of what had been 
and would never be again. Conversation lagged. They watched television, the hands sitting on her lap or beside her on the couch, showing pleasure or displeasure in the set's offerings with mimed commentary that at one point an angry response to an anchorman's report on the war included a silent but vehement middle finger. Rebecca answered some concerned phone calls from family and friends who wanted to know how the reunion was going and told them that no, she and Bob were not ready to receive any visitors just yet. More hours of silence, broken by intervals of halting conversation, rendered necessarily brief by his limited skill at typing, inevitably, and to some extent horrifically led to dinner, where the discomfort of lunch was not only repeated, but doubled, by the awareness that all this was still only starting, that the silence of their meals would soon be a familiar ritual, for as long as the future still stretched. There was only one sign of real trouble before bedtime. Bob's wandering right hand encountered a framed photograph of himself in uniform on an end table next to the sofa. Rebecca happened to be watching as his hand hesitated, tapping the glass with a fingertip as if somehow hoping to be allowed back into the image's frozen moment of time. It looked like he knocked the photo over deliberately. She was almost a hundred percent sure. That night, she lay on her habitual side of the bed, the ceiling an empty white space offering no counsel. His right hand burrowed under the covers and settled at about waist level, while his left sat on his fresh pillow, preferring the sight of her to any warmth the blanket might have provided. When she turned off the lamp, the pinprick red lights of his left fingertips cast a scarlet glow over everything around them, making that pillowcase look a little like the aftermath of a hemorrhage. The fingers caught Rebecca looking at them and waggled, either a perversely jaunty hello or a reminder from Bob that he could see her. She forced herself to lean over and kiss his palm, somehow fighting back an instinctive shudder when the fingers curled up to caress her cheeks. Rebecca called Bob's hand by his name and told it she loved him. Under the covers, his right hand crawled toward her left and wrapped its fingers around hers. She had already held that hand for hours on and off and would have preferred freedom for her own now. But what could she say, really? Knowing that to reject the touch now in this most intimate of their shared places, on the very day he'd returned to her, would have amounted to rejecting him. She had to give him something. She had to pretend, if nothing else. So she squeezed him back and whispered a few loving words that sounded like fiction to her own ears and let him hold her with one hand, while the other watched with eyes like pinprick wounds. She slept, and in her dreams... Bob's hands had still returned to her, but without the nice sanitized bands that allowed them his memories and mind and hid the magnitude of the violence done to him behind polished silver. In her dreams, his hands returned to her with the wounds ragged and raw, strips of torn and whitened skin trailing along behind them like tattered streamers. Each had a splintered and blackened wrist bone protruding from the amputation point, like a spear. The fingertips of these bob remnants 
were blind and useless instruments, incapable of leading him anywhere except by touch, as they crawled across the polished kitchen floor in search of her, while she fought air as thick as jello to stay just beyond their reach, they left a continuous gout of blood behind, more than mere hands could have possibly bled without becoming drained sacks of flesh. The kitchen became a frieze of twisted blood trails, which only continued up her bare legs after the chase ended, and she found herself standing as paralyzed as any dream woman, with her feet nailed to the floor, while the disembodied hands climbed her. She might have screamed herself awake, but she couldn't breathe in the dream, as the air around her was not an atmosphere a woman could breathe, but a thicker substance that refused to pass her lips, no matter how deeply her chest labored, or her ears thundered, or how desperately she struggled to draw anything capable of sustaining her into her lungs. Then she woke up, and knew it was not a dream. He was strangling her. His hands had tightened around her throat, the two thumbs joining at her windpipe, while his coarse and powerful fingers curled around the curve of her neck to meet, as if in terrible summit, at the back. Even as a man with more than hands, he had always possessed a strong grip, and the hands that were all that remained of him seemed to add the strength of his arms and back as well, all dedicated to the deadly, impossible task of compressing her throat to nothingness. A woman being strangled by a complete man might have died clawing at his chest or grasping for his face or even going for the hands themselves, which would have possessed the advantage of being anchored to arms and shoulders. Rebecca had nothing to fight but the hands, and they provided a focus for her resistance. She reached for the sharpened pencil she kept beside the book of crossword puzzles that had been her only companion since Bob went to fight that goddamn stupid war— and jabbed at the back of his hands until his skin broke and his grip went soft, and the two little pieces of Bob fell away, freeing her to breathe again. She might have screamed and continued to stab her husband's hands until there was nothing left of them but torn flesh, but something in the way they now lay on the bed, ten glowing red lights staring up at her, halted her in a way that crazed or uncomprehending eyes might not have. She flipped on her bedside lamp and regarded Bob's murderous hands in the glare of harsh light. All things have faces, even when they don't have faces. The human eye insists on putting faces on them. Even hands have faces and expressions that change depending on how the fingers are held in relation to the palm. Hands can look calm or agonized or desperate. They can look gentle and they can look brutish, sometimes while remaining the same hands. For no reason at all that made any sense to her, her husband's hands looked lost. She didn't understand, but she could sense that there was something she was failing to see, something she could almost see that was just outside of her field of vision. Bob's right hand mimed a typing motion. She was reluctant to leave them alone long enough to get the type pad. She had read too many stories about people who turned their back on monsters. But they made the motion again, insistently. She went to the other room, returned to see that her husband's hands remained where they had fallen, and, not trusting them to keep their distance, tossed the pad onto the bed.
he typed. I am sorry, so, so sorry. I would not hurt you for anything. I was having a nightmare. I have been having them for a while. I didn't know it was you I was hurting. Please understand. Please forgive me. Please. Rebecca was not ready to forgive him. You could have killed me. I know. It was not the man you married, but the man who lived through hell over there. When I know where I am, I'm all right. Maybe we can't sleep in the same bed for a while. Please understand. Please. She wanted to die. But after long minutes standing there, feeling her fury churn inside her, she went to her husband and told him it was all right, that she would set up another place for him in another room, and that they would sleep apart but see each other in the morning. She kissed him on the knuckles and went to make his new bed, a pillow, stuffed into an unused drawer of a bureau in another room. He allowed her to carry him there, without argument, and they parted, though the sound of frantic thumping continued in the night, and she was reduced to lying sleepless, her eyes fixed on unseen, bloody carnage in the darkness. The VA man said that she should take Bob to the first available support group, and even specified a local chapter that was meeting the next day, they went. It amounted to five sectioned veterans and their spouses, sitting in an approximate circle on folding chairs that must have known happy occasions as well as sad, christenings, religious meetings, political rallies, maybe even amateur theater productions, all dissipating in the air as soon as the chairs were put away and stacked and returned to the anonymity enjoyed by furniture. The idea that somebody might sit in the very same chair she sat in now, a day or a week from now, and sip fruit punch while discussing plans for the decoration of the school prom seemed almost incomprehensible to her. There were five fragmented veterans along with spouses and other family members at the meeting, some of them arguably better off than Bob, others so much more reduced that it was impossible to know whether to scream in horror at their predicament or giggle uncontrollably at its madness. There was a boy of twenty-two who had been in-country for less than a day before a bombing reduced him to a thin strip of face that included one blind eye, two cheeks, a nose, and part of his upper lip, all now mounted on the very same silver plate that kept him alive, which his mother had attached to a plaque suitable for mounting on a wall— Another was just a torso, devoid of limbs, genitalia, or head, and plugged at all the stumps by more silver interfaces. Another was a shapely woman with delicately sculpted nails, a short skirt designed to show off a killer pair of legs, and a top designed to accentuate her cleavage. Her every move reeked of sexuality, which may have been the way she carried herself before being drafted, or the way she now compensated for losing the front half of her head, which instead of a face or a jaw or a pair of eyes, now displayed a plane of mirrored silver before her ears. A fourth had not been salvageable as anything but a mound of shredded internal organs, but had been gotten to in time, and was now completely enclosed in a silver box about the size of a briefcase with a screen for communication and a handle for her grim husband's convenience.
The last was, like Bob, a pair of amputated hands. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He was the one who made Rebecca want to run screaming, because his lovely blonde wife had dealt with the problem of maintaining a relationship with him by amputating her own hands and having his attached at the end of her own wrists. The silver memory discs marking the junction points on her arms would have resembled bracelets had his calloused, darker-skinned, hairier, and disproportionately larger paws not resembled cartoon gloves at the ends of her smooth, milk-white arms. And had her husband's hands not usurped much of the control of those arms, which now gesticulated in a perversely masculine manner as his loving wife described at length how much this measure had saved her marriage. More than once during the meeting, Rebecca caught those hands resting on the other woman's bare knees and caressing them, the arms stroking them back and forth, with a lascivious energy that the other woman clearly recognized and appreciated, but otherwise seemed wholly removed from. She could only wonder if that's what her own husband wanted, if that was something Bob could ever ask of her, and whether she could ever come to want it herself. The man, lugging around the briefcase, told all the other spouses at the meeting that he considered them lucky. Their loved ones had returned to them as parts that could be touched, skin that gave off an undeniable, if largely artificial, warmth, flesh that evoked the memory of what had been, even in those cases where it could manage little else. But his wife? He produced a picture of the woman she had been, a plump, little, chubby-cheeked thing with a premature double chin, but a smile of genuine warmth and eyes that seemed to express genuine mirth at some hidden personal joke. He said that she could see him through the interface and even communicate with him through the type pad. But words had never been a major part of her, not even when she was whole. She had been more a creature of silent gestures, of accommodating smiles, 
of kind acts and expressive glances and sudden, stormy silences. Now, he said, she was a sack of non-functioning organs, containing just enough meat to qualify as alive, and though she would occasionally answer direct questions, she more often remained silent, telling him when pressed that she just wanted to be left alone, put on a shelf, and forgotten. It was getting harder and harder for him to argue otherwise. My wife is dead, he told the group, and after a moment of shocked silence, repeated himself with something like stunned wonder. My wife is dead. My wife is dead. The wife, whose arms ended with her husband's hands, just pawed herself. Gallo's humor intruded, as it always does among survivors of extreme loss, when the man who was just a strip of face said that he'd met a guy back in the hospital who had turned out to be nothing but an asshole. The wife of the torso said that she'd met one guy who was a real dick. Somebody else said that his lieutenant had always been a little shit and probably still was, and the variations only went downhill from there. There were a few little flights of fancy involving the prospect of sectioned people who had been reduced to nothing but their sexual organs and how their chances of making a living after the service were so much better than anyone else's. But by then, the shocking jokes had started to trail off, replaced by uncomfortable silence. The meeting broke up with ten minutes of internal business involving when the next one would be held and who was going to get the word out to others who might benefit by attending. Rebecca went to the table where the coffee and the cookies were laid out on a plastic tablecloth and stood there, not wanting any of it, but needing to do something other than return to a house and a life now dominated by silence, and found herself shaking until the woman with a flat silver mirror for a face came up behind her and, speaking through a voice synthesizer, said, You're not alone. Rebecca broke down and accepted the hug, feeling the warmth of the other woman's arms, but also keenly aware of how cold the mirror felt against her own cheek. She wanted to tell the other woman, Of course I'm alone, and my husband's alone, and you're alone, and we're all alone. The very point of being in hell is that there's a gulf between us, and all our efforts to bridge it for even a moment give us nothing but a respite and the illusion of comfort before those bridges retract and we're left to face the same problems from our own separate islands. She wanted to say it, but of course she couldn't, not if it meant embracing despair in defiance of this sectioned woman's kindness, and so she wept herself blind and took the hug as the gift it was meant to be. By Saturday night, the answering machine was filling up with calls from family and friends, eager to know how it was going and wanting to know when they could enjoy their own happy reunion. Following her husband's wishes, Rebecca called them all back to thank them, but put them off, saying that there were still adjustments to be made and accommodations to be arranged. Again, many wanted to know if Bob was all right, she wondered how she could possibly be expected to answer that question, but said, yes, he was all right. They asked her if she was all right, and again she gave the answer they wanted, that yes, she was all right. 
The two sat together, watching the latest reports from the war for a while, not reacting to the news that a hundred thousand more had been called up, and how this would not be enough. Or afterward, to the feel-good assurance, delivered by a smiling, red-headed anchorwoman, that actual deaths that counted as deaths were at an all-time low. Bob's hands tapped at his pad, producing a string of lowercase profanities that Rebecca supposed were now his angry equivalent of embittered muttering. She fingered the bruises on her neck and decided that maybe they shouldn't be watching this. She turned off the set with the remote and sat with him, feeling and tasting the oppressive silence as if it were the very air, rendered so thick that every moment felt like an eternity spent underwater. Sometime later, her husband's hands released hers and went to the type pad. Do you want me to leave, or do you think there's any future for us? She didn't know, but she thought of her husband in better times, that strong man, that smiling man, that occasionally petulant man, the man with the naughty streak who sometimes became the child who treated her as the authority figure whom mischief needed to be hidden from. She remembered him pulling one form of foolishness or another, peering at her out of the corners of his eyes to see whether she thought it maddening or funny. She remembered the shape of his head in the middle of the night, when the lights were out and it was too dark to see him as anything but silhouette, when he was awake and looking at her, not knowing that she was awake and looking at him, this shadow of him that was to her every bit as revealing as his features viewed in the full light of day because she knew him and could fill in the darkness. She remembered what it was like to let him know with a touch that she was awake too and how sometimes that led to whispers and sometimes to more. She remembered his lips, his teeth, his touch, his gentleness and his passion. She remembered sometimes not letting him know that she was awake instead just continuing to feign sleep and thinking that this was her man and her lover and her friend and someday the father of her children. She remembered once feeling so proud to have won him that her heart could have burst. Say something. She didn't know if there was anything to say. That was the thing. She didn't know, but she was proud she was proud, and she didn't want to be the one to fail. She knew that it didn't speak well of her that this remained the chief motivating force in her current relationship with what had become of her husband, the stubborn refusal to be the one who failed, to be driven not so much by an instinctive, unquestioning need to support him in what he had become, but the drive to be the better one, the strong one, the one who did the right things and held on when it might have been easier to just be the bitch who gave up. Maybe, she thought, that was the way back. Not through love, but a fierce, unyielding pride. Maybe if she could stoke that, the other would return. But how could she, when it was so much more than she could make herself give? Bob's hands had gone back to typing. Bex, I lied. She looked at them and perceived something ineffably tense about the way they sat against the type pad. About what? Whatever happens, I need you to know that I remember more than I told you. It's worse than the news reports say. It's dirtier and bloodier 
and nowhere near as simple. It's the kind of place that makes you forget that there's any good anywhere in the world. It's why so many of us choose to forget. But I backed myself up for the last time, only two days before the attack. I remember everything terrible that happened to me over there, everything terrible I did. Afterward, when they downloaded me, they gave me a choice of keeping it all or going back to some earlier recording. I almost threw out the whole damn war, but I decided to keep it all because I had to. She stared. Why? The only thing worth remembering about any of it was how much of it I spent wanting to return to you. That, at long last, destroyed her. For the first time since his return, she gave in to her sense of loss and howled. She buried her face in her hands and didn't see her husband's hands disengage from the tight pad or return to the couch, but she did feel the weight of them on her shoulders, the strength they still had when they squeezed her there, the gentleness they still showed as the index fingers brushed the tear tracks from her cheeks. She found his touch both familiar and alien in some ways, like he had never left, in others, like he was a stranger, returned from a war with nothing but gall and a vague resemblance to seduce the widow with dire lies of being the man who had left. She missed the weight of him, the solidity, the sound of his breath, and she still hated the cold feel of the metal attachments at the end of his wrists, so much like chains. But for the first time, she was able to feel the presence of the boy she had fallen in love with, the man she had married, the husband who had been with her at night. It was him. Against all odds, at long last, it was him. And for the first time, irrationally, she wanted him. She told him she needed a minute and went to the bathroom, where she ran water over her face, dammed her red nose and puffy eyes, and made herself presentable, or at least as presentable as she could. She knew that it was not the best time. She was terrified, a wreck. From what he'd typed, he wasn't much better. But there would never be a best time, not if she just kept waiting for it. In life, there were always thresholds that had to be crossed, whenever they could be, if only because that was the only way to get to whatever awaited on the other side. When she had done everything that was possible, she returned, kissed her husband's hands, and carried what was left of him to bed. After she undressed and got under the covers, his hands hesitated, with a sudden shyness that was almost possible to find endearing then slipped under the covers themselves and crawled through the darkness to her side, one heading north and the other heading south. The sheets rustled, and she allowed herself one last analytical thought. How lucky she was, after all, to have him come back as a pair of hands and not as some useless strip of flesh in a sealed silver box. How very much they'd been left with. She closed her eyes, grew warm, and let her husband love her.
Sometimes horror lives in very odd places. Some writers can make it live and thrive in love. Uh, this story is an extraordinarily touching one, and I think it certainly explores and works toward expanding the limits of where the genre can take us if we let it in. Adam Troy says he had absolutely no medical realities in mind when he conceived this story, just the dark emotions that drive it. It's a touching and quite lovely piece of work, yes? Yes, it is. Currently, Adam has a series of middle-grade novels coming out. They're the adventures of Gustav Gloom, the first of which is Gustav Gloom and the People Taker. It'll be out in August of this year from Grosset and Dunlap. And best wishes for it. And thanks again, Adam, Keita, and John Joseph Adams. And, by the way, I, I hope you realize that was mock animosity back there. I do not hate Adam Troy Castro. I love his work and admire the sheer range and complexity of the matters he deals with. So, best wishes to you for this story. By the way, the hyphen in Adam Troy is a typo from his college newspaper. He says he found it just annoying enough to embrace with gusto. Thanks again. Story three. Karen Warren is an Australian author of horror, science fiction, and fantasy stories and novels. She began writing at age 14, made her first impact on Australian literature in the early 90s of the last century. She's the author of the short story collections The Grinding House, which won the 2006 ACT Writing and Publishing Awards, and Dead Sea Fruit. Her short stories have won both the Dittmar and Aurelius Awards. Her debut novel, Slights, was published by HarperCollins' new Angry Robot imprint in July of 2009. Uh, that was followed by Walking the Tree in February of 2010 and Mystification in June 2011. I just began reading Slights, and I must say I'm happy that Karen's work is gaining recognition in my part of the world. Glad she's breaching the walls of what must seem to some like a, like a boys' club. She has an original voice that's both profound and gut-wrenching. Here, have a listen. All You Can Do Is Breathe by Karen Warren Stuart lay trapped underground for five days before the tall man appeared and stared into his eyes. He thought he sensed movement, flicked on his cap lamp. Barry, did you make it through the wall? But no one was there. There was, though, something in his face, so close he pulled back and banged his head on the rock behind him. He shouted, mouth open, squeezed his eyes shut. He'd never felt such terror, not even when his daughter had fallen into the pool and they didn't notice for God knows how long. This was a man, something like a man, tall, elongated. The thing looked deep into his eyes. It reached out and almost took his chin with its bony fingers, keeping his head still paralyzing him even though it wasn't actually touching him. Stuart could smell sour cherries, something like that. It made him hungry, and that hunger somehow beat out the terror. He pulled his head backwards. The man nodded, stepped back, and was gone. Within a minute or two, Stuart was sure he'd imagined it, though he had words in his ear. See you soon, Stuart. He was sure he'd heard those words. 
It felt like the walls were getting closer, but he kept testing by stretching his arms, and the distance was the same. The part of the mine he was working had collapsed so quickly it seemed like time stopped and froze, and when it started up again he was surrounded on all sides by rock. Barry, his workmate, was on the other side, but he'd heard nothing from him for twelve hours now. Thank God for the luminous hand on his watch. The kid gave it to him for Father's Day years ago, and even at the time he'd been thrilled. You don't always get that with Father's Day presents. It wasn't what you'd call a worker's watch. It was full of gadgets, like the watches of the office men who drove to work each day, passing him as he stood, cold in the dark, the bus stop with the other miners. Their cars blinked with gadgets. This watch kept perfect time and followed the date, and the hand provided a warm green glow and the pitch black. At home he had to keep it in his bedside drawer at night because the light kept his wife awake but he could still see the thin green line across the top of the drawer where the light escaped. Since the walls came down, he'd slept sporadically, waking a couple of times, thinking he was home in bed because of the glow. He'd covered it up with his lunchbox, and only a small line escaped. He had his cap lamp, but he really didn't want to use that. There'd been mine rescues lasting two weeks, and he wanted to know he could have bright light if he needed it. He knew they wouldn't give up. They never left a body underground, mostly because they didn't want it found much later. He had his GPS, so they knew where he was. He could see Barry's blip, too, but that didn't mean he was still going. Just his GPS. Stewart stretched his legs and arms out and in, counting to a hundred. His wife was always on at him to do more exercise, so she'd be pleased to see him do this. His water and food had run out on the third day. He knew there was no sense keeping the food. It would just go off and make him sick. Some gritty water dripped down the wall. Licking it made his tongue ache. It was so cold, and there wasn't enough of it. He pissed into his water bottle and knew that drinking it wouldn't kill him. He pretended it was lime cordial, the sour stuff, not the sweet. Food-wise, he knew he could last without it for a while, but it didn't help the hunger pains. Lucky his wife packed him heaps, and there was Barry's lunch as well, on Stuart's side of the wall where Barry couldn't get to it. He tried moving the rocks, but it just caused more of a tumble no matter where he took the rocks from. He wanted to keep trying, but his instincts told him to just leave it. Bugs skittered about, and he could eat them. The strap of his lunchbox was leather, and he chewed on that, making jokes that it was about as good as his sister-in-law's roast dinner. If he got out, he'd make that joke, and people would write it up, and his sister-in-law would be famous for her bad cooking. Stewart tried to sleep when he figured it was nighttime outside to keep a routine going. It was hard without a change of light and with an empty stomach. And he hadn't done anything to wear himself out. Usually he'd drop into bed after a shift and a feed, exhausted. On Saturday, if he hadn't been in the mine, he and his wife might have sex. But it wasn't something he thought about much. He thought about it now. He spent a lot of time with his eyes closed. But he tried not to think about the dark. Instead, he went through football matches, he remembered. It was seven days before they found him. Nowhere near the record, but enough to have a media frenzy going on. As they were getting close, they'd managed to get a tube through to him and send him notes from his wife and daughter and bags of glucose. They dropped some biscuits down, too. I was hoping for a meat pie, he called up the tube. He could talk with his mouth close to the tube, tell them shit he wanted his family to know, tell them all the jokes he'd thought up while he was down there, nothing worse than a joke without an audience. They called questions down like, Are you scared? Nah, I'm not scared. I'm fearless. Nothing scares me. He asked them about Barry, and they said they were working on it. Ever since the long man had visited him, Stuart had had a bad feeling about Barry. 
He thought perhaps that was Barry's ghost, and he felt bad about screaming. He wished he'd said, G'day, mate. Whatever. It was overcast when they pulled him out, but still far warmer than inside the mine. It meant he didn't have to squint because of the sun. His wife Cheryl was there, and his daughter Sarah, and for a long time he couldn't talk, just held them and cried. He'd never actually cried before, not since he was a little kid anyway, but this he couldn't help. He thought he'd never see them again, and he loved them, loved them hard. Sarah looked so beautiful, so grown up for thirteen years. Underground, he'd imagined her future. In his darkest times, like the hours after the long man disappeared, and he felt like giving up, he imagined her future, who she'd be, what she'd do, who she'd marry, what her kids would look like. He dreamed it all in case he didn't get to see it, and now there she was. His rescuers were there, too, none of them keen to go home, dirty-faced, exhausted. He couldn't believe how happy they were to see him. He knew he'd have to live well every day of his life to justify what they'd done. "'Where's Barry? Did you get him out?' he asked once he'd had a warm drink. They loaded him into an ambulance, although he said he felt fine. "'They haven't got Barry yet,' Cheryl said, but her eyes were downcast, and he knew she was fibbing. She didn't do it very often, and he thought only to protect him— like the time half the mine was shut down and the wives knew about it first, and the time Sarah had broken her arm because of the kid next door. Cheryl didn't want to tell him that because she knew how angry he'd be, but he didn't do anything about it. The kid was never allowed in their front door again, but that was it. I'd rather know than not know, he said. There were news cameras, people with microphones, and others with notepads. Why do you think you survived? they shouted at him. Why you and not Barry? The tears took again at that, and Cheryl squeezed his hand hard. The ambulance crew shut the door, and then it was a week in hospital before he had to face the questions again. They told him about Barry, once they thought he was all good. Barry'd been trapped, his leg under the rocks. Stuart could imagine how bad that must have felt, so Barry tried to cut his way through. Jesus, cut his way through his own leg. They said he'd bled to death. He wrote you something while he was down there, Cheryl said. He was always scribbling, that Barry. He'd write a letter to the Pope if he could get the address, Stuart said. It was an old joke which made him tear up, thinking that Barry would have laughed at this one. He was hallucinating, they reckon, but still, you should read it. I thought you'd got through the wall, Stu. I didn't hear you, but heard a rock shift, so thought you must be to my left. You wouldn't answer me, so I cracked the shits. I couldn't turn my body, but turned my face as far as I could, twisted my cap lamp around to catch you. I figured you wanted to kill and eat me. That's how stupid I was. Wasn't you. My light went right through this thing. I could see it, though. Looked almost like a man, but stretched out like a piece of bubble gum or something. Or when you press blue tack into newspaper and get some print and stretch it out. Like that. You had long fingers, twice as long as mine. Don't know if you heard me scream, but this thing freaked me out. It came at me, and I would have pissed myself if I wasn't already sitting in my own wet pants. It leaned forward and put its eyes real close to mine, stared into me. I screamed my head off. No reason, just scared shitless. It came at me, touched my nose with its long finger, and it shook its head and drifted back. I thought, shit, it's going to stew, and I screamed louder. I wanted to warn you, but what do you do? I didn't know what to tell you. I don't know if I'll last till they find me. Tell my mates they did me proud, and if you can find my mother, tell her I'm sorry. Do you know anything about this long man, Stuart? 
Did you hear anything, see anything? His wife asked him. Stuart nodded. He spoke quietly. I saw a man like that. I thought I must have imagined it, but maybe it was a ghost. Maybe someone died in there and he was looking at us, going, you're not going to make it. No way. You're going to die. Because he made me feel so bad I almost wanted to die. That's awful, Stuart. We're so lucky to have you back. He kissed her as he did any chance he got. Maybe keep it just between us for now? About this long man? Other people won't understand it. Don't tell the media types, okay? You think I'm crazy. No, I don't. But I know you, and they don't. Just keep it to the simple stuff, eh? Shouldn't be hard for you. He discovered he was good at talking. Cheryl thought it was funny. You're a gabber now, Stuart. Couldn't get ten words a day out of you beforehand. She fixed his hair, getting him ready for the next press conference. Yeah, well, they're always asking me for answers, he said. He didn't mind. It was always the same thing, so he didn't have to think too hard. This one, the room was packed. They knew he was fully recovered and had some others to talk to. The mine owner, who Stuart had never met, one of his rescuers, and some doctor, a psychologist. They had a good go at the mine owner for a while about responsibilities and compensation. Then they turned to Stuart. Did you always think you'd be found? I always expected to be found. I'm a bit like that. I expect I'm going to get good luck. Just that kind of person. All credit to the rescuers, though. I can't believe those guys still can't believe what they did. We'll be friends for life because of it. The rescuer next to him clapped a hand on his shoulder. Was there any time you wanted to give up? He thought of the long gray man and the feelings of despair he'd left behind. They wouldn't believe him if he talked about it, think he was mad. Nah, I just thought of my wife's pot roast and that got me through. What is it you've got? Why did you survive and not bury? I can't answer that. The psychologist stepped in. There are many reasons why people survive. For Stuart, he had thoughts of his family to sustain him. Barry didn't have that, and studies have shown it makes a difference. Also, Stuart was less dramatic in his actions. Maybe he thought ahead a bit more, and maybe Barry thought he could get out of it. You're saying it's Barry's fault he was trapped? His own fault he died? No, not at all. But the fact is that Stuart thought it through and trusted the rescuers. You think yourself lucky, Stuart? Couldn't be luckier, Stuart said. Luckiest man left alive. I'm sure your rescuers would be happy to hear that. Do you feel any sense of obligation to them? Do you owe them anything? Yeah, look, they're all spread out around the place, but they can come to my place for a feed any time they like. And you know what I really owe them? I owe them a good life. He and the rescuer shook hands, and the cheering of the audience went on for two minutes. What do you say to the idea that some people don't survive because they may have died helping others? Yeah, well, if I could have helped Barry survive, I would have. What about his food? Is it true you ate his food? Yeah, I ate his food. He couldn't get to it and it was only going off. That's not what killed him. The psychologist said, It is true that often it is the survivors don't help others, especially in times of famine. Survivors are the ones who will take food from a child's mouth. Stuart felt stunned. He wasn't sure how the conversation had turned against him and what a hero he was, but it seemed it had. All I did was survive, he said. No one had to die for me to survive. I did it because I love my family. I love my life, and I wanted to get here on TV for the free beer I've heard about. With that, he had the audience back. Afterwards, there was plenty of beer drunk. The crew took him out to the local pub, and he was there long after they left. People had watched the interview, and they all wanted to talk to him about it. If only we could bottle what you've got, there'd be no kiddies dying of cancer, people said to him more often than he wanted to hear. If only we could bottle it, you'd be a rich man. If only we could bottle it, we'd save the world. 
They thought he had some magic power, that it wasn't a willingness to drink your own piss and a great desire to have proper sex with your wife again. It was something else, something they couldn't have. He took a drink well, but even he was feeling a bit woozy by around midnight. By 3 a.m., the pub was almost empty. He could no longer remember who he'd spoken to, so when a sad-faced man said hello, he nodded and went back to his beer. "'Hello, Stuart,' the man said. His voice was soft. It had an amused tone as if he knew more than other people, found something amusing. Stuart no longer wondered how people knew his name. Plenty of them did. He rather liked the celebrity. He'd always enjoyed making connections with people all over. Stuart looked at him this time. "'Do I know you?' he asked. His teeth were bright, white, and even, clearly false. His hair, pale blonde, sat flat on his head. He smelled strongly of aftershave, the kind Stuart used to smell wafting out of the cars while he waited for the bus. His mouth drooped. Sad man, Stuart thought. "'How are you holding up?' "'I'm okay. Bit tired.' The man moved so that he looked directly into Stuart's eyes. Stuart froze. This is how the apparition in the cave had looked at him, with this intensity. He was used to people staring at him greedily, but this was different. The sad face, the long arms, long, long fingers. It was the apparition from the mine. The man's hand went out and grabbed Stuart by the wrist with a powerful grip. Hold still, Stuart. This won't take long. Stuart shivered feeling as cold as he had underground, chilled to the bone and dreaming of snow. Lego me, would you?' he said. He tried to pull back, but he felt deep lethargy, as if he'd been injected with golden syrup and his limbs wouldn't move. The man raised his other arm and brought it up to pinch the bridge of Stuart's nose. Stuart was paralyzed. He wanted one of the other drinkers to intervene to hit the man, knock him away, but no one did. It was so quiet, Stuart felt as if he was back in the mine, and the idea of it made him choke. No, that wasn't it. He had a nosebleed, blood pouring backwards down his throat because the man held his sinuses so tight. He let go, and Stuart slumped forward, spitting blood. He felt movement return. Turned his head away from the man. The man bent and helped him up. Nosebleed, nosebleed. Make a bit of room. I'll take him and clean him up. Nosebleed. He'll be fine. Stuart tried to pull his arm away. His mouth was full of blood. Come on, Stuart, it'll be all right. He led Stuart into the men's toilets, propped him against the wall. Stuart heard a skittering sound, like cockroaches across the kitchen bench at midnight. He thought he caught a whiff of them, that slightly plasticky smell, a smell of sour cherries. It won't hurt, the man said. Stuart felt the creatures, and by straining his eyes could watch them walking up his arm. The scream in his head deafened him. Up his forearm, his biceps, over his shoulder, onto his neck where he could feel them latching on. It's not your blood they're taking, the man said. His voice was soft and almost too broad to listen to. It's something else. You won't miss it. It'll be like it was never there. You won't know. He clicked his tongue and Stuart thought the sucking stopped. He felt light-headed and nauseous. The man plucked a beetle off Stuart's shoulder and ate it crunched it like it was a nut and took the next. Two more, and he was smacking his lips. Stuart couldn't move. He felt so cold. He felt like he'd been buried in snow or was back in the cave. But it was light in here, very bright. Look at me. The man's cheeks were pink, his eyes bright. He looked younger, happy. 
Thank you, Stuart. Have a good life. He tapped Stuart on the head, and Stuart slept. He awoke on the filthy toilet floor. Someone had dropped a wad of shitty toilet paper, and he could smell that. He felt little compunction to rise, to lift himself. It was like this was the only moment, and there was nothing beyond. Another man came in and helped him up. Home time for you, mate? Wait here while I take a piss and I'll get you a taxi. Do I know you? Stuart said. Things seemed blurred, and he couldn't remember much. Nah, but you'll always help someone in trouble, right? Especially a survivor like you. I am a survivor, Stuart thought, as the stranger helped him to a taxi. That's what I did. But he felt as if he could never do it again. He woke up in his lounge room floor, his shirt stiff with dried blood. Big night, was it? Cheryl said, poking him with her toe. Sarah stood over him, ready for school. Her shoes all shined, her white socks folded neatly. He shivered, feeling cold. The long man pinched my nose. His face felt swollen, and he knew he must look awful. Get off the floor, Sarah said. You're shivering. I will soon. He felt a deep sense of pure lethargy. Cheryl helped him up onto the couch and brought him a cup of tea. You're too old to drink like that anymore. It wasn't a drink. Well, I did give it a bit of a hiding, but it was this guy, this long gray guy who gave me a bloody nose and then did something to me. I'm tired. I'm so tired. And cold. She brought him a fluffy pink blanket and covered his knees with it. The TV producer sent over a copy of your interview. Sarah and I have already watched it twice. Want to have a look? You come across really well. She didn't wait for his answer, but played the DVD anyway. He watched the interview over and over that day, wondering at the person talking. Geez, I'm a smart arse, aren't I? He said, smiling at Cheryl. She kissed his forehead. You always were. The lightness of her tone warmed him slightly. She'd suffered postnatal depression, and he was terrified every day it would come on again. He saw it behind her eyes sometimes, in the droop of her mouth, a wash of sadness. Those were the times he tried harder to lift her up. Out of the corner of his eye, he thought he saw a bug climbing the wall, and he curled up, pulling his blanket over his eyes. We need to get the rent-a-kill guys in here, get rid of the cockroaches, he said. She nodded. Ants, too, all over the kitchen, rotten little things. She sat beside him, laying her head on his shoulder. I still can't believe you're back, she said. His little bird, his sparrow, but a tower of strength at the same time. Usually, sitting beside her, he felt something. Irritation often, when she went on about small domestic details, none of which interested him. Boredom, talking about her family. Affection, when they sat together watching TV. Love, when they laughed together at a joke he'd made, when her eyes crinkled up and little tears formed. He loved those little tears. She held his hand, he let it lay loose. Are you okay? she said. I just can't feel anything. It's all gone numb. She stared at him. We have to tell the doctor. Something's wrong. You shouldn't feel like that. I don't feel anything, love. That's the thing. Nothing at all. Just cold, like I've got an ice block inside my stomach. He didn't tell her he meant emotionally as well, that looking at her left him cold. To cover it up, he kissed her. Usually they'd do this stuff at night with the door closed, but he kissed her with passion and moved his hands around her body, touching all his favorite bits. The weeks passed. He ate meals he had no real desire to eat. 
had conversations and many, many interviews. Sponsorships brought money in. Newspaper reports listed everything he'd eaten underground, and those people approached him. It was Vegemite, Tip Top Bread, Milo Chocolate Bars, Apples. The local fruit shop took on that one. And the local butcher had a go, too. The watch company put him on TV, talking about how he'd never need another watch. That one was so good. So at least he didn't have to work. People kept asking him if he was going back underground, and he'd bluff at them and give them the real man answer, the hero stuff. But he wasn't going back. He spent a lot of time reading the paper. He started cutting out stories of other survivors, especially the ones who talked about the cold, about the deep bone chill they felt after a few days. Dad, let me hook you up with an online forum. You can meet other survivors, talk to them. Most of them are probably feeling what you're feeling, Sarah said. He sat at the computer for a while, but it only made sense when she talked him through it, and he didn't want her to know it all. She asked him about the long man. The one you said pinched your nose? We should try to track him down and make sure he doesn't do it again. People can't go around pinching my dad's nose like that. Willy-nilly, he said. It was an old joke. I don't know if we'll find him. I don't think he's at the pub much or if he's got a job. I saw him when I was buried, you know. He sent his ghost in to find me. Others had talked about seeing visions, buried in the snow or caught in a car for two days on a country road. They said, more than one of them, that a long man had visited them. It's not just me, he told Sarah. No one knows why he doesn't help. He just looks. Did he pinch their noses? Is this the stuff we can find online, Dad? Yeah, maybe, maybe. What about stuff about cockroaches, how to get rid of them? I saw a huge one in the bathroom. They say they'll survive nuclear war. That's what they reckon. He shivered. I ate them. He felt like a fraud. Life exhausted him. All the people wanting what he had, and Cheryl and Sarah got nothing but harassment. Lucky your dad's alive, your husband, people said to them. Imagine what life would have been like without him. How sad, how hard, making them think about it. All those people wanting to talk to him, but they paid him at least and kept him in beer and roast beef. Always the same questions. What is it you think you were kept alive for, they asked, putting the onus on him to make something of his life, as if he'd been given a second chance and he'd be a fool to waste it. Don't know what I was kept alive for, but mostly I'm enjoying every extra minute with my daughter and my wife, was his stock answer. But he no longer really cared. They asked him, Are you scared of anything? Seems like you're not. It was a stupid question, he thought. Who wasn't scared? Cockroaches. I really hate cockroaches. The interviewer sighed in agreement. Another question they always asked him was, put in the same situation, would or could you do it again? Well, I won't, mate, will I? Just not going to happen. They always ended with, if only you could bottle it. His standard joke was to hold out his wrist. You want to take a liter or two? Go for it. I can spare it. It was all an act, and he was good at it. He was waiting in the queue to buy fish and chips. Aren't you that guy, that minor guy? When he smelt sour cherries. It took him straight back to the cave and the smell of the long man. He felt cold through his layers of clothing and did not want to turn around. He felt someone behind him, close. But people did that. They seemed to think if they got physically close to him, they could absorb some of him, that they could be like him. He took his package of food and left the shop, eyes down, climbed into the car some sponsor had given him sat there to eat it. The long man opened the passenger door and climbed in. Stuart dropped the food on his lap where it sat, greasy and hot. He barely felt it. 
He scrabbled for the door handle, but the long man took his wrist, pressed hard, and Stuart couldn't move, just like the last time. You seem to be enjoying that fish, Stuart. You know what that tells me? That I didn't take it all. The fact that you want to eat tells me that. Stuart tried to shake his head to say, I'm faking it. It's all fake. I can't feel a fucking thing. But the cockroaches were out, skittering and sucking. And if he thought he was cold before, that was nothing. His eyelids felt frozen open. His nostrils frozen shut. Breathing was so painful he wanted to stop doing it. That's it now, the long man said, picking cockroach feelers out of his teeth. You're done. Stuart sat slumped in the seat for a while, then started the car. A tape was playing, one of his interviews. He liked listening to himself, hearing his own voice. I'll do anything to stay alive, anything to keep my family alive, he heard himself say. You know, I got stuck in a pipe once when I was a kid. Fat kid I was. I sang songs from TV shows to keep me occupied. Listening from his car, chilled to the bone and tired, Stuart wondered if he'd seen the long man then, if the long man had waited and waited until he was good and strong. He pulled out of the car park. It was only his sense of duty making him do it, long instilled. He had to go to a school visit someone had organized for him, some school where there was a survivor kid, a young girl recently rescued. It took him a while to get there. Wrong turns, bad traffic, angry traffic. He thought there was more road rage than usual, but then wondered if it was his driving... If all that stuff about driving carefully did make sense, because he didn't care now, didn't care how he drove or what he hit. We'd like to welcome Stuart Parker to the school. He's taken time out of his busy day to talk to us and to talk to Claire, our own hero. The children clapped quietly. Stuart guessed they were tired of hearing about Claire. She'd been trapped in the basement of a building, a game of hide-and-seek gone wrong. No one knew she was playing. No one knew where she was. It took six days for them to find her. "'Tell us how you coped, Claire,' the teacher said. "'I pretended I was at school doing boring work, and that's why it was so boring. Sometimes I thought about this nice man from the mine. He said he kept thinking of nice things, and that's what I did, too.' The children shuffled, started to talk, bored. Claire looked at them wide-eyed. "'I ate bugs, lots of bugs, like he did, and I had some chips I took from the cupboard, but I didn't want to tell Mom and Dad because I didn't want to get in trouble.' She had their attention, but not completely. And then there was the creepy guy. You were alone in the basement, Claire, weren't you? The teacher said, passive-aggressive. No one there? Who did you see? Stewart said. He hadn't had a chance to speak before then. What did he look like? The audience were rapt. They didn't often get to see adults this way, all head up and loud. I was all by myself, but then this creepy long guy was there. I'd never seen him before, but I thought he might help me get out. But he didn't. He just stared at me. I told him he should go away, but the only thing I think he said was, See you soon, Claire. That's why I'm scared. I really don't want to see him again. Stuart wanted to care. He wanted to save her, but there was nothing left in him, only the memory of the man who would have killed to save that girl, would have ripped the arms off any man who tried to hurt her. Just a memory, though. Stuart, we haven't heard from you. What can you tell the children? That there is no purpose in life. We all die and rot, and none of it is worth anything. You're only taking up space, and that the long man is real. You need to keep her safe from him, because he'll destroy her. The principal, stunned and speechless, took a moment to answer. The children were silent, and he wondered if he'd laid seeds of sadness and emptiness in all of them. 
He didn't mean to, but he was too tired and cold to lie anymore. But, but Mr. Parker, you're a role model. We asked you here to lift the children, inspire them. I'm nothing, nothing at all, he said. Claire, Claire was in the news, and so was he, with his awful statements, his cruelty to the children. He had the media at his door again, but they hated him now for turning on the children. You don't do that to the kiddies, do you? He watched Claire. She didn't look chill to the bone, so he thought perhaps the long man hadn't come to her yet. His house was full of his sponsor's food, and friends came over to eat it because he wouldn't. Some of the rescuers, too, looking at him as if they'd wasted their time, sitting there in front of the television, warm rug, warm slippers, all skinny and pale. He couldn't even fake a smile anymore. His famous watch had slipped off his wrist and sat in the dust under the couch. We should have bottled it. We could give him a taste of his own self, one of the rescuers said. He knew they were disappointed in him, that he wasn't doing what they wanted him to. Three days of my life I gave to save him, he heard one say in the kitchen. Now look at him. They left him alone. And he didn't care. Thank you, Karen, and good luck to you for the Stoker. And thank you, Nathan Lowell. You're becoming a regular here in the Nook. Have a look at uh, Nathan's website. I also want to draw your attention to the place in which this story first saw printer's ink. It was in Ellen Datlow's Blood and Other Cravings from Tor Books. And if I have to tell you who is Ellen Datlow, I'll have to ask you to leave the nook. Well, maybe not, but she is horror's doyen anthologist. Her efforts are twice embraced by this year's Stoker's for the aforementioned blood and other cravings, and for supernatural noir. Thanks, Ellen, for letting us present Karen's story, and best wishes to you for the stoker. Does it seem ingenuous of me, my good luck wish going to both Jean, Adam Troy, and Karen, and in all anticipation that I shall do the same with Stephen King, George Saunders, all the nominees— well, I, I've got favorites, yes. I'm a voting member of the HWA, and I have voted, and will never disclose who got my votes. And still, I wish them, all of them, good luck in these several efforts and in future work. Good luck in your careers. And, of course, these people don't really need luck. Okay. I'm going to let you go for the night. No poetry, no reviews, no other maunderings for me. I, I hope you've enjoyed this, our first Stoker evening. I hope you'll drop by next Friday for another gather here in the Nook. And yes, yes, it is. It's raining out there, so cover up. Spring's here, mud season. Oh, by the way... Tales to Terrify now has a Facebook page. So, when you go home tonight, when you dry off, go to your computing machines and hop onto Facebook. Search for Tales to Terrify. 
And when you see the nice red box with the friendly green letters, come in and like us. So now, scoot on home, dry off, slip into bed, cover up, don't forget to breathe, and have pleasant dreams. Hmm? Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 